Hello, and welcome to our podcast, Breaking Down Mental Health, with myself, social worker Saima Khan, child and adolescent psychiatrist Dr. Heidi Burns, and nurse practitioner Dr. Christina Swiner. We are excited to be joined by Dr. Ben Bierman to discuss capacity assessments. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Bierman. I'm happy to be here. Thank you. Dr. Bierman is a child and adolescent psychiatrist on faculty at the University of Michigan. His clinical work focuses mainly on hospital-based care, psychiatric emergency services, psychiatric inpatient, consult liaison, and ECT treatments. He served as the medical director of the Child and Adolescent Inpatient Service for nine years until 2017, before devoting most of his clinical time to the psychiatric emergency services. Dr. Bierman's clinical and scholarly focus has been on adolescents with mood disorders and disruptive behaviors, treatment-resistant depression, and youth in crisis. He also has an interest in substance use disorders and dual diagnosis. None of our speakers today have any conflicts of interest or financial disclosures to share. Dr. Bierman, can we just start with a definition? What's a capacity assessment? A capacity assessment is um, basically a determination of decision-making capacity. So um, it tends to come up in medical situations when a treatment is proposed and a patient is refusing to get that treatment, and it seems um, you know, that there's a, an obvious benefit from the treatment and the, the patient is saying that they don't want it. Or in another situation where a patient too readily agrees to a treatment that might be invasive or have a long-term consequence, and there really doesn't seem to be much of a discussion around it, and um, it raises a red flag in the, in the minds of the providers. When thinking about doing a capacity assessment, what types of things need to be included in that capacity assessment? Well, first of all, let me just uh, say that capacity is um, almost assumed for most patients. So it's a very intuitive sort of sense. You know, when we go about our daily business of treating patients, um, we just generally accept that they understand what we're talking about. We have their best interest in heart, at heart, and they have their best interest at heart. And when a situation arises where a treatment is proposed or suddenly the patient um, is acting differently or talking differently or making a decision that doesn't um, seem to make sense to the treatment providers, the question of their capacity comes into play. And so um, at that point, we begin a discussion of uh, whether the patient has what we call capacity. And um, would you like me to go into some of the elements of, yeah, of how I think we... Yeah, that would be great. Sure. So there are some fundamental um, questions that we ask ourselves, and generally there are four things that we need to determine. One is whether the patient has an understanding of the benefits, the risks, the alternatives to treatment, including absence of treatment. So what happens if you get the treatment? What happens if you don't get the treatment? So that understanding is, is fundamental, and that, that involves communication and so on. The second is, um, does the patient really appreciate those risks and benefits and alternatives? So do they seem to understand and grasp it and be able to talk about it in a, in a reasonable manner? The third thing is that um, the patient has to have reasoning capacity. So they have to be able to have a sense of what goes into their decision-making. You know, what do I want from this treatment? What are some of the downsides of the treatment and so on? And be able to demonstrate that through discussion, that um, they can do that. And fourth, they need to have the ability to communicate. 
those choices. So they need to be able to tell us and describe um, what it is that goes into their decision making. So those are the four main elements that are generally accepted in various states, actually around the world, in determining capacity. Now, Dr. Bierman, you and I and um, Dr. Burns and even Simo, we've been involved in a lot of different cases that uh, we get consulted as a psychiatry team to complete a capacity assessment. And one of the scenarios that comes up frequently is a question to leave against medical advice. So for example, we see a lot of young adults with eating disorders. Um, What if we could maybe walk through like a case scenario. So we have a 19-year-old female who has anorexia nervosa who came in for refeeding, who has like a BMI of 16 and is asking to leave against medical advice. What are some of the specific questions that you would maybe ask when talking and determining capacity for that kiddo? That That's an excellent scenario and actually a very common one. So um One of the factors that goes into um, reasoning capacity, for example, is whether or not there is a condition that can be treated or a temporary condition. So for example, a person with severe depression might feel that they don't deserve a treatment or they're not worthy of it. And we know that we can treat that depression and change that temporary state of incapacity to one where the patient might make a reasoned decision. So in the situation of something like an eating disorder, um, by virtue of the fact that it's a disorder, the criteria for that is there's a distortion in terms of thinking, in terms of body image. And so calling in a a psychiatrist or a mental health professional would be to make a determination whether the eating disorder is um, affecting the person's reasoning to the extent that they can't make a sound decision. And it can, it can be, um, it's not always clear cut. So for example, you may have a patient with an eating disorder who actually has a healthy BMI. So, you know, what we know about eating disorders, for example, we used to be, be very strict about weight criteria. And the thinking on, on that has changed um, over the years. So that somebody might be at a healthy BMI and might not be an immediate you know, threat of dying if they leave the hospital. You know, they may have some reserve, be able to. And so capacity is, um, that that reasoning capacity is sometimes questionable. It's a judgment call. Um, If somebody has a BMI of 16, like you said, or their electrolytes, you know, are dangerously impacted, they have, they're at risk of um, cardiac arrest Mm -hmm. because they have low potassium or something like that. Um, it's it's a pretty clear-cut decision. We would say that this individual, because of their illness, does not uh, have capacity to make that decision. So um, oftentimes a psychiatrist might be called in to assess the role of the eating disorder in, in capacity. So um, that's, a, that's a common scenario that we see. I really appreciate your reflection, Dr. Bierman, on you know, the important questions that need to be asked within a capacity assessment and, and what are some of the situations that healthcare providers may find themselves in, you know, when they're having to get support to explore capacity. I think that's I th- an important question to ask as well, right? Like, what does it mean to lack capacity? So um, going back to those uh, four criteria. So um, let me talk about some of the questions that we might ask, because I, you know, I didn't specifically go into that uh, with your previous question. But um Some examples might be just a very open-ended, what is your understanding of your condition? 
You know, what, why is it that you're in the hospital? What is it that we're treating? What are the options for your situation? You know, what, what do you understand that your treatment providers have told you about your situation? And what are your options here? What is the importance of nutrition in your life and your health? Can you, can you talk about that? What is it that would happen if you continued to not get adequate nutrition? Can you explain that to me? And so some very general questions to sort of get at the person's, number one, understanding of the risks and also um, looking at their decision-making capacity. Um, so I might ask a patient, you know, I understand that you're insisting on leaving and you don't like being in the hospital. Tell me what the risks are if you leave. What, what might happen to you tomorrow or the next day? What is it that would happen if you stayed? Is there something we could do to help you feel more comfortable or to, or to help you make the decision that we think um, we're advising you to make? Um, so kind of get at, you might even ask, what criteria do you use when you make decisions about your health? I'm kind of curious about that because you know, I'm worried about you. And I, I worry that if you, if you leave the hospital, you're putting yourself in medical danger. So tell me how, you, how you've come to this decision. Um, that you want to leave the hospital. So ju just some general questions like that can give us a sense of, you know, how the person communicates. Do they really understand what's going on? Um, is there something like anxiety that we can manage or treat? Or is this really driven by their eating disorder, that they are panicking at the thought of gaining weight or, of, you know, getting, getting nutrition? And so, you know, those general kind of open-ended questions. Um, the other thing is to assess their understanding. I might say, tell me back what I just told you in your words. You know, sometimes doctors throw out medical jargon or something you might not understand. Um, so tell me back in your words what you think I just told you. And, you know, at some point it might become obvious, you know, that the patient is, is really lacking capacity um, because they, they can't articulate their reasons and it's just based on emotion. I think we've um, been in scenarios when working with patients that they truly don't know what the risks are of not having a treatment or maybe even getting a treatment. Um, and kind of going back to the case scenario that we've been talking about, I've met with eating disorder patients who can very clearly articulate, if I leave the hospital and don't continue to get the nutrition that I need, I'm at risk for cardiac arrest. I'm a risk for arrhythmias. I'm at risk for X, Y, and Z. And in those cases where they have full capacity, like an understanding of this poor decision, they still have the right to poor judgment, which I think is really hard for care providers to understand and appreciate that insight is different than judgment. Do you have any thoughts about that, doctor? Yeah. So um, the patient doesn't have to agree with us in order to have capacity. So a patient might determine that they don't want a treatment. Um, a good example um, that we see in society right now is the decision about getting COVID vaccine, right? Um, as, we, as we all know, um, an issue like COVID there are political implications and beliefs about health and beliefs about autonomy. And, you know, as a society, we have not dragged people in and made them get vaccinated. So we might not agree with someone's decision, but we respect it and we believe that they have capacity. Um, when somebody has a mental illness, um, there is an interplay with capacity and mental health law. So as a psychiatrist, I can mandate that somebody get an evaluation or even get treatment 
if there's an immediate threat to their life and, and well-being. So the classic example is somebody who's suicidal, right? So a patient who makes the decision, um, I want to kill myself. As a, as a psychiatrist, I have an obligation to protect that person. Um, if, if somebody is going to harm somebody else or if somebody is psychotic. Um, with an eating disorder, it's a rare circumstance where somebody is in immediate threat of death. So um, if we really think they are and we're exercising good medical judgment, then we can file a commitment petition and hold the person in the hospital against their will based on their mental illness. In the area of eating disorders, there is still some gray area because it's not the same as somebody, for example, who has a, an obvious psychotic disorder, somebody with schizophrenia, somebody with obvious delusions. Somebody with an eating disorder may be very bright, have good reasoning capacity, but still be impaired. And, that, and in that instance, we would have to turn to the mental health system in order to, to mandate their treatment. Another example um, that we encounter is with substance abuse or addiction. So we may have a person who is in the hospital because they just had an overdose. And they were in the emergency room, they were resuscitated, they were given Narcan. And we know that they're at high risk of going back out and continuing to use drugs that are putting them at risk. We want them to get treatment and to, you know, abstain from substances, but, you know, they believe that they can be safe outside of the hospital. So, you know, that's another area sometimes where, um, um, you know, we're at, at odds with true safety and the person's decision-making and what the mental health code allows us to do and, and not to do. And I think that's where some of our primary care physicians or emergency room physicians will call in psychiatry to sort of make some of those distinctions about, you know, where does the person's illness leave off and their personhood or their actual decision-making capacity um, come into play. I think that's a good spot to ask a question about who is actually able to do a capacity evaluation, because you alluded to the fact that there are some situations where you might, might want a specialist care or a specialist provider to come in and take a look at that situation and, and help make that decision. But who else is able to do that? Well, actually, any medical provider can determine capacity. So capacity is a judgment call at any point in time uh, around a specific decision. And it's a lot different than um, competence, which is a, a legal decision. So a physician treating a patient who um, is proposing a treatment that a patient is refusing can make a determination about this person's ability to make that decision. So for example, um, a patient might be delirious and confused and disoriented, and they need IV antibiotics because they're developing sepsis. And they might be just thrashing around and saying, I don't like needles. And a competent physician can insist that they get an IV, start the antibiotic in, in, that, uh, in that situation. When psychiatrists are called in, it's typically when a primary care provider or, or any provider really feels that they're not capable of making the determination. They might have a question or um, might not know that they're somebody who can make that determination. Um, so for example, if there's a patient who is schizophrenic and in the hospital needing to get IV antibiotics and says, I believe that I'm being poisoned. I, I don't think that there's antibiotic in that IV bag. I think you're trying to poison me and I'm hearing a voice saying you're trying to poison me. 
Um, a primary care doctor might call in a psychiatrist to determine that the person indeed does have psychosis, that they have schizophrenia, and as such, their decision-making capacity is impaired. So that's a long-winded answer to say that really any, any medical provider can determine capacity. Um, specialists are sometimes called in if there's a specific question that the primary care doctor feels that they um, are unable to answer, or if they want a second opinion. So we can always, in healthcare, request a second opinion if we question our own judgment or, or don't have a clear answer. So Dr. Bierman, kind of adding, you know, on our understanding of what is a capacity assessment, what does it mean when someone, you know, lacks capacity, what are the next steps if someone does lack capacity? What does that mean the medical team can do? So uh, if an individual lacks capacity um, and we feel that a, a treatment is necessary, typically there, there's a couple of steps that they'll employ. One would be to turn to a family member or somebody who knows the patient well. And in most states, they actually have a, um, a hierarchy of decision-making capacity. So somebody who is married, we would typically turn to their spouse and ask them to make that decision for the patient or a child um, of a patient or a sibling, a close friend, somebody who knows the patient well um, can make a decision on their behalf. Or any physician can always act in good faith. So if a, a physician believes in an emergency situation that a treatment is required to save a person's life, then they can intervene and in the vast majority of instances would be protected under the law. So, um, Lacking capacity uh, means that we think this person is not capable of making a decision. Somebody else now has to step in and make the decision for that person. And Dr. Bierman, you mentioned something a little bit earlier in the conversation that capacity assessment is a particular point in time for a particular question. So somebody may have capacity for one decision, but not the next, um, depending on their understanding of something. But how does that differ from competency? So um, competency is a legal determination that has to be um, made by a judge in court. So competency is a much more a much more broad, constant, unchanging uh, determination. So for example, somebody with an intellectual disability. Uh, somebody who has an IQ of 40 and, you know, doesn't understand um, really what's going on without, uh, you know, somebody else making that decision for them. So a court can make the determination of competency in a situation or, or lack thereof. Um, and that's, that's a lot different than um, an individual with an average IQ, you know, good reasoning capacity who in a situation is impaired by an illness um, by intoxication, by delirium, by a psychiatric condition. Um, it's more static and, and global. So along that same vein, Dr. Bierman, in talking about uh, competency, oftentimes we are looking at potentially pursuing guardianship of an individual. What types of situations would we consider pursuing guardianship and how do we make this recommendation to like a family of a young adult? Okay, so um, guardianship, like um, competence, is a legal determination. So a guardian is somebody who is appointed by the probate court to make decisions on behalf of an individual. Um, and in that case, it's an individual of majority age, so somebody over 18, 
who is not competent to make decisions. So a classic example may be a parent of a child who has an intellectual disability. Um, so you know, up until the person is 18, the parent is allowed to make the decision you know, for any child, really. Um, but when that person turns 18 um, and they're the age of majority, a family member or um, you know, a close friend, really anybody can submit an application for guardianship. Or actually, most people don't realize um, an individual can submit an application for their own guardianship to, to have a, a guardian appointed to them if they meet certain criteria. So um, where it comes into play um, oftentimes in, in healthcare is let's say there's an individual who requires frequent healthcare or is in the hospital a lot and they're 17 and a half and the parents are making decisions for them and we know that they're gonna be turning 18 soon. We begin a discussion with families about submitting a petition for guardianship. And then there's a, a legal hearing and a proceeding, and the, and the judge appoints a guardian for the patient. Um, guardianship can be full um, in terms of making decisions about the person's finances, where they live, all their health care decisions, or it can be specific to a particular aspect of the person's life, such as health care. Um, so, you know, so basically, if a person lacks uh, capacity to make a decision, um, and they're not competent to make decisions about their life, somebody petitions for guardianship and, and the court appoints it. Yeah, oftentimes in the hospital, we have those situations where, you know, we feel like a young adult that we're working with doesn't have capacity. And so, you know, we pursue um, emergency guardianship to kind of help formalize like a decision maker to help that young adult in their care. Um, and it's really helpful to have that court process and place to be able to then access additional treatment and kind of formally support that young adult even after they leave the hospital. Because, if, you know, if they are a competent adult, they can make their own healthcare decisions, they can decide who's involved in their care. But, you know, if there is a temporary guardian, you know, while they're currently dealing with a pretty significant um, mental illness, that that person can be involved in their care and kind of help support them ongoing as well. Yeah. And I think bouncing off of that, Saima, um, we often encourage or support families and going down the guardianship pathway or emergency guardianship when there is those maybe consistent capacity assessments or more global capacity assessment. They're like, ooh, this this young adult is really struggling to make their healthcare decisions in general. And it's not just that one specific question that they're struggling with. It's more of that global concern from the health team. Exactly. So, you know, capacity to to make a medical decision is basically informed consent a snapshot in time about a particular decision. If it's going to be an ongoing chronic sort of situation about all of their healthcare decisions, a guardian is essentially a surrogate decision maker for the person. And, you know, we encounter them often. So, um, for example, you know, when I do ECT treatments, there are some patients that are chronically mentally ill, have conditions like schizophrenia or autism, um, with, you know, a, a comorbid intellectual impairment. Oftentimes their parent is their guardian or a spouse. And so when we have them sign their consent for treatment, the guardian signs the consent and we proceed with, with the care. I would say, you know, probably the most common scenario where we do this is with patients with intellectual impairments. And, and those, that population of patients happens to be more prone to health conditions. So, um, they, they need a lot of assistance in terms of navigating that territory. 
Yeah, and as a healthcare provider, I think if you're in a setting and you have concerns about, you know, a young adult that you're treating um, that may have some kind of, uh, if you're treating a young adult with an intellectual disability and you're uncertain if they're able to really comprehend the medical information you're providing um, and it's impacting their health, you know, maybe that is a point to also consult, you know, an ethics team um, and to explore further about whether potentially they need like a healthcare guardian to help them make those decisions. Hospitals have ethics teams to, for these types of scenarios. I mean, most of the time it's clear cut. You know, we deal with well-meaning families, you know, who you know have family members who are very beloved but impaired. And so it's obvious that the parent should be the guardian or, you know, uh, you know uh, another family member um, in a situation where the parents are impaired or unable to make decisions. Um, it can be contentious. So... Um, sometimes, you know, we would involve an ethics uh, discussion, or um, there are also professional guardians, people who uh, work for the court system and are willing to step into that role, are, are trusted individuals in the community that are uh, able to make decisions uh, for patients. Um, I encountered that very thing uh, the other day in the psychiatric emergency room. We have an individual who is in need of inpatient psychiatric care. Um, is estranged from family members, and actually has a community member who's been appointed as a guardian for this individual to help them make decisions. Thanks, Dr. Bierman. Could you explain how is capacity different between adolescents and adults? That's a very interesting question, and um, it's one of those areas where there are no clear-cut you know, answers in, in certain cases. So if a person under 18, um, you know, comes in and there's a question about their decision-making capacity. So first of all, I think we should back up and talk about the issue of the rights to healthcare for adolescents. So that's something we often encounter. Um, so what sorts of services are minors, for example, able to, to have access to without parental consent? Um, and there are some circumscribed areas that are generally universally accepted. So one area is reproductive health. So a child is generally over the age of 14 can seek, um, go to family, uh, you know, to um, Planned Parenthood, for example, and seek birth control, um, get treatment for an STD, um, and just get assistance with reproductive decisions. You know, obviously, when it comes to sexual behaviors, most kids don't want to go to their parents and talk about these things. And they can get themselves in trouble, and we want to help them, you know, make reasoned decisions. So that's pretty carefully protected by law. Um, in many states, um, a surgical procedure, such as an abortion, can't be performed without parental consent. Um, so that's one area. The other is seeking mental health care. So um, there may be an individual um, under the age of 18 who wants to seek mental health care and for whatever reason chooses not to discuss that with their parents. So we may have a child coming from an abusive home or a child coming from a situation where the parents don't believe in mental health care. We, we encounter that. Or a child who simply doesn't want to discuss their mental health issues with their parents. So that, that individual can seek mental health care, um, and there are a certain number of therapy sessions they're able to get, um, depending on the state. The only thing that we can't do is hospitalize them without uh, a parent consent or prescribe medication without a parent consent. 
So minors have certain rights under the law. Um, another area that I didn't mention is substance abuse. So uh, adolescents can seek substance abuse treatment. They can decide that they don't want their parents to see the results of a drug screen. You know, there are certain protections under federal law that protect people who seek substance abuse treatment. So those three areas for adolescents, reproductive health, mental health, and substance abuse treatment are generally protected, you know, under, under the privacy laws uh, in most states. And so, you know, what happens in a situation where, you know, an adolescent is saying they don't want a treatment and there really isn't a, a responsible parent to make that decision. So an angry adolescent that doesn't want to take their insulin in the hospital. We would go through that same determination of capacity with that adolescent. So do they really understand? Do they have reasoning capacity? Are they able to communicate that? And so on. Um, so the, the same uh, principles of determining capacity would be undertaken in that individual. And in those situations, would you often also engage the family and kind of how does a family or a parent's, you know, more than a family, a parent's decision also play a role in the adolescence treatment? Well, yeah, a parent is legally allowed to make a decision. Uh, but for example, as mental health professionals, we very commonly treat kids in the hospital who don't want to take medication. And we believe it would be helpful for them. Their parents believe it would be helpful for them. And the parents are willing to give consent, but the adolescent decides they don't want to take the medication. In that situation, we would really spend time reasoning with them, trying to get them to come around, use therapeutic approaches, try to engage the family, try to engage a trusted individual such as a, a pastor, a member of the clergy, a school counselor, somebody that might have a relationship with the child or, or adolescent, and, and try to get them to... Um, you know, really examine their thought process and make a determination, am I just being stubborn because I'm an adolescent and I want autonomy, or do I really believe I don't want to take this medication because of side effects, or I'd like a different treatment approach? So uh, generally, we like to have what's called assent. Uh, a parent can give consent, but a child or an adolescent um, can give assent, which means they are in agreement even if they don't legally consent for it. So going back to the example of ECT, we you know, have kids that we treat with treatment-resistant depression, very severe depression that would benefit from ECT treatments. And in that case, it involves a general anesthetic, and you know, it's a little bit more complicated than starting a medication. And we would be very unlikely to do that procedure if we had a, a teenager just insisting that they didn't want to do it. We would, you know, get the consent from the parents and the assent from, from the adolescent. I know of two cases in my career where it was felt to be an immediate life-threatening situation where we actually went to court and got a court order to, to do ECT in teenagers. But that would be a very rare exception. So just as you mentioned, Saima, we um, typically try to involve others, spend some time discussing with the child, um, bring in parents or other trusted adults um, before we would do something like, you know, go to the court system to, to overrule a, a child's decision. It really seems like 
adolescents have a lot of autonomy in their care as well. And so, you know, unless it's life-threatening, you know, where they're refusing a medication, you know, that that may cause death. You know, I think like in the example of like, you know, a child that needs insulin for type 1 diabetes, but, you know, otherwise that adolescents can really, you know, choose aspects of their medical care, um, even if their parents are recommending it or their medical care teams are recommending it. You know, the, the other situation that sometimes happens is if we feel a treatment is necessary and the parent won't um, consent to it. So, you know, many families are nervous about mental health treatments, for example. So we may encounter a child who comes in and had a suicide attempt. And we determine that the best course of action is an inpatient psychiatric hospitalization. And the parents aren't willing mm -hmm. to allow that to happen. So there are situations where um, we have to involve the legal system. So we might contact social services and make a claim of medical neglect. Um, and it might involve the court system. So we do encounter those situations. We liked for adolescents to have autonomy and to make sound decisions about their mental health care. And, um, you know, adolescence is a very challenging time in our lives. And it's a very challenging population for healthcare practitioners to, uh, to deal with. And so there, there's a reason why child and adolescent psychiatry is a subspecialty. And there's a reason why adolescent medicine is a subspecialty of, of pediatric care. Um, because, you know, having the skills to deal with young adults and, and adolescents in that age group can, can be challenging. I think it's important to consider, you know, where people are developmentally as well. And um, what we know about the adolescent brain is that the reward centers, so the pleasure centers and peer influence and so on, the, the affiliative parts of our brain and the reward parts of our brain are much more powerful than the cognitive, higher order thinking skills. So a kid, an adolescent might insist on being discharged because they have a party to go to that they've been looking forward to. But they really need three more days of chemo or they need you know, th three more days of antibiotics. Um, in that case, you know, we would have to recognize you know, this is a, you know, an individual who lacks capacity. They're, they're not exercising good judgment about their care by virtue of where they are developmentally. And so we would have to step in and, and override that decision making or involve the parents. I really appreciate the addition of developmental concerns, right? Because recognizing that, you know, adolescence is a time when your brain is developing, even as a young adult, you know, we've, we've talked about that in some previous um, podcasts that, that our brains are still changing at that time. And so it can be hard to make well-reasoned decisions and include the multiple factors. So I, I think this talk has really kind of showed us that there's so many layers to medical decision-making and it's not really straightforward. Um, and to utilize those supports as well and to not feel like you have to make some of these decisions all by yourself if you feel like there's a, a sticky situation and you're uncertain about the ability of a young adult to consent. Um, to maybe get those other teams involved. And I think the thing that strikes me when I think about capacity evaluations and the experiences that I've had uh, doing them in, in the inpatient uh, world is a lot of times we end up not actually having to go forward with a capacity evaluation if someone will take a little bit of extra time to go in and discuss the procedure or discuss the fears around it. Um, and just taking that little bit of time to spend with a patient 
um, before sort of pulling the trigger on going for a capacity evaluation, which can be kind of a contentious thing for a patient to go through. You know, it's it's oftentimes clouded in miscommunications and um, sometimes just spending a little bit of extra time with that patient and helping them, um, bringing them along with you and helping them understand why you might want them to do this and why you think it's good for them is, is really worthwhile. Yeah. And you make an excellent point. Um, and that whole idea of like communication, understanding, decision-making is very nuanced. So, you know, many of, many of these decisions to refuse care are based on fear or heightened emotions. And so having somebody who is skilled at helping patients, you know, sort of come down from a high emotional state to kind of regulate their fears and just have a conversation, explore their understanding, would make a true capacity evaluation unnecessary. You know, so um, what starts out being a capacity evaluation can often turn into, you know, a half-hour therapeutic intervention where, you know, we, we acknowledge the patient's fears, we address the concerns that they have, look at their anger, their helplessness. You know, so... A good example of this is uh, kids with chronic medical conditions. So a kid with cystic fibrosis who comes in the hospital every two months for antibiotics and on a given day is just not wanting their breathing treatment. You know, it's like, I just don't want this. I'm angry. I don't care if I die. Go away from me. They may be having a bad day, you know, and we can postpone the treatment for an hour um, and have a discussion and you know, do, do some therapeutic work with the patient to get them to come around and, and, you know, accept this unpleasant scenario, but it happens to be the reality of their life and, you know, try to get them to use some perspective taking and, and to, uh, you know, make a different decision. So a couple other things that I didn't mention that I think are important here. Um, one is um, communication skills or, or um, language barriers. Um, those sorts of things can come into play. And so we want to make sure that, you know, the patient understands us and, you know, think about the type of medical jargon that we use. And, you know, that's where we're seeking clarification or using an interpreter if, you know, you know English is a, their second language and there are some nuances that they might not understand. The other area is cultural or religious beliefs. So we may have patients who um, the classic example is the Jehovah's Witness who is refusing a blood transfusion, even if it might be life-sustaining. Life um, you know, most courts would determine that the patient has a right to that autonomy, and we wouldn't be able to step in and do something against their will. And that doesn't mean that they lack capacity. Um, it means that a particular treatment or a particular intervention is contrary to their values as a human being, as a certain cultural or ethnic group, as a particular religion. And so um, sometimes we, you know, we have to consider those things as well um, about our patients. I definitely appreciate you bringing in the cultural aspect to things. I think just a couple months ago, we had a young lady who was practicing Ramadan, but had an eating disorder and calling on our colleagues in spiritual care to help us with those conversations. And help her see what she was doing was detrimental despite um, her religious beliefs, but also partnering with those people outside of the the medical community to have those conversations. And you made another good point, Dr. Bierman, is a lot of times patients 
make decisions out of fear. And if we can just pause and figure out how to address that fear, we can still get them the medical care that they need. Is it that breathing treatment doesn't need to happen at 6 a.m.? Can we just do it at 7 a.m. when, you know, I'm a little bit more awake or, you know, whatever it may be to help the patient continue their care, but in a comfortable way. Mm-hmm. You know, and, and as providers who do consult liaison work, mm-hmm. um, you know, every patient is different. So we do things like, let's cluster our care. So two o'clock is a good time. Come in, get the vitals, do the blood draw, bring in the, you know, the consult teams, meet them all at one time, because this is a good time of the day for this particular patient. So um, just meeting the patient where they are, um, can sometimes uh, make a capacity assessment unnecessary or avoid triggering a patient into a state that they might willfully, you know, angrily uh, refuse to get a treatment based on emotion. So, Yeah, and it would foster that ongoing patient-centered care approach, that family-centered care approach, as opposed to creating that contention that may happen. Yeah. One question that we sometimes forget to ask in in the literature that I looked at on capacity is to ask the patient, do you trust your healthcare providers? Do you believe they have uh, the competence and, and ability to make good decisions about your care? Or have you had experiences where you've, you know, had, um, you know, uh, negative side effects or something go wrong? And so you have grown to not trust healthcare providers. And um, what can we do to, you know, help you gain trust, help us gain trust with you and, um, you know, show that we really do have your best interest at heart that, yes, indeed, there was a poor decision made about your healthcare six months ago. Um, but that doesn't, we know better now. We have more information. So, you know, we're, we're better able now uh, to make a, a decision that uh, you would agree with and, and that you find favorable. Thanks, Dr. Merriman, for mentioning, you know, personal histories and um, the impact of trust as well. As we know that for many populations, healthcare hasn't been a space that's been supportive of them. There's been, um, you know, for the black community, there are many examples of discrimination, of uh, mistreatment provided. So we need to be aware of things that have happened in histories of, you know, from both like a historical perspective and individual perspective, um, trauma that maybe they may have experienced, all those things I think really need to be um, considered when we're thinking about someone's uh, capacity to make a decision. Right. You know, another area that is much more prevalent in our culture now than like 50 years ago is um, gender. So we have patients who identify as non-binary or transgender um, and have had negative experiences by being misgendered or misunderstood. And um, I'm thinking of this because just recently I had a a situation um, where a patient was seeking psychiatric care and it had some very negative experiences around their gender identity that impacted their willingness to seek treatment further. They didn't want to put themselves in certain situations where they might be misunderstood or misgendered, but they really needed treatment, you know? So um, it was a matter of really taking the time to listen, to validate, to understand, to thank them for educating us around how to ask questions, how to respect their autonomy, their identity, their sense of personhood, um, and cut through some of those barriers that, that were present and very obvious in the situation. So we've had a really rich discussion about capacity, medical decision-making, and ways as healthcare providers, 
we can help support our patients and their families. Any other thoughts, Dr. Bierman, that you'd like to share with our audience? Just just one other thought that I think is important is there are some actual assessment tools and some instruments out there. If we really need to do a formal capacity assessment and want to have a clear outline of, of some questions to ask, um, there are um, some well-known instruments out there. One of them is called the uh, Aid to Capacity Evaluation or the ACE assessment. It's available online and it just is a series of questions where we can say yes, no, or uncertain. Um, and then the other thing is to document in the record um, that we've assessed capacity and where possible to include quotes from the patient. So um, particularly if we de are determining that there is not capacity. So we always want to rule in favor of patient autonomy when we can and um, err on the side of the patient. So if we're documenting that there is not capacity, um, we really need to document that in the record. Um, and justify our decision-making around that. So I, I think that's an important point to, to leave the audience with. Thank you, Dr. Bierman, for joining us today and spending this time with us and sharing your expertise. We really appreciate it. And to nurses, social workers, and physicians, you can claim CMEs and CEs at uofmhealth.org slash breaking down mental health. You're able to do this anytime within three years of the initial air date. And thank you to our audience who tuned in with us today, and we hope to see you guys next time.